Our Father in heaven, we are truly grateful for the time that we have that we can come together and to study your wonderful words of life. We thank you for allowing us to be here at ASI. And Lord, I don't want to pray just for myself and all those under the sound of my voice, but I want to pray for all the speakers. And I pray that you will truly anoint them with your Holy Spirit and that everything that would be said and taught would be that which is ordained from the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And Lord, I pray that as we begin to study one with another, send your Holy Spirit. We can't understand these words and especially live them without him. And so we're praying for the forgiveness of our sins and we're praying for the enlightenment that only your spirit can give that we can leave here better than when we came in. And this is our prayer that we do ask and thank you for answering in the worthy and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, which I'm assuming you do, I would like to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of James chapter one. I want to I want to establish something. James chapter one. We're going to James, the first chapter, and I, I want to establish this right from the beginning because I'm really not here to teach us anything new. If it is new to you, well, that's just happenstance. But it's not so much that I, I want to startle you with something new. I believe that what we need to do is master that which is old, is to really take heed to the old things that we've been given. And so this is why the Lord impressed my heart to give you James chapter 1. And I want you to see what the Bible says. And if you're there, just let me know by saying amen. amen. In James chapter 1, look at verse 22. I'm reading from a King James Version, and here's what it says. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. My goal in our time that we have together is not to find out how much you know. That is not as much heaven's interest as it is what are you doing with the little or great that you know. This is on the mind of God like never before because there may be some of us in here who are not Seventh-day Adventists. And if you're not, well, we want to say welcome. You know, um, really, it's, it's, it's such a blessing to have those of different diverse views and what have you, because there is a such thing as come now, let's reason together. And so if there's anybody here that's not from the Seventh-day Adventist church, we want to just say welcome and thank you for coming, because we believe that part of the reason these meetings exist is so that it doesn't just strengthen us who may know a few things, but it helps enlighten those who don't. But there's a lot of us here who are Seventh-day Adventists. We have been exposed to a whole lot of things. And we've heard it over and over and over again that it begins to sound like that old saying says, like a broken record. And it gets to the point that sometimes we get happy just knowing what God says. Not understanding that the blessing was to the doers of what God says. And so my goal when we go through this study together today, my question to you is not how much of this do you know? My question is how much of you are doing the thing that you know? For since we're in the book of James, I think it's an appropriate time to go to chapter four. If you look at James four, this is really the mind of God. In the mind of God, his desire is for us to receive blessing. He made us for blessings. But at the same time, 
Blessings comes from doing and not just hearing only. Well, we already studied that, but now look at James 4. The Bible says in the book of James 4, we're now considering verse 17. It is in James 4 and verse 17 that the Bible also says, to him that what? That knows to do good. But what's the problem? They do it not. It says to him it is sin. And if there's one thing that can separate a man and separate a woman from God, it is that thing called sin. And so God does not want us to gloat, pat ourselves on the back and say, yep, I know that. What God wants you and I to do is to search our hearts. And I promise you, this message is just as much for me as it is for you. I am so thankful that you don't have to be perfect to preach a perfect message. I'm really thankful for that, for we wouldn't even have the Bible, would we? Because those were very imperfect men and women. But oh, how God's perfect message touched their own hearts. And then God used them to touch yours and my heart. And so I'm not standing here before you as a man who has mastered that which I share with you. I share with you that which I'm on the journey. I'll tell you a quick little story. One day I was with a friend of mine. We were in Walmart together and he weighed about 400 pounds. I don't see anybody in this room that looks even close to that. But that's what he weighed, 400 pounds, big guy. And we were there and we were picking some things up. And as we were picking some things up, he was on the line with me. And when he was on the line, he saw a lady that was buying all this meat and dairy products and all these other things. And so, you know, what, my friend who was 400 pounds, you know what he started to do? He started to talk to her about health. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> you know, he started to talk to her about health. He said, hey, did you know that, you know, there's certain things and certain food that could hurt us, but there's other food groups that, you know, very good for us. And he began to talk about that. So you know what the lady did? The lady looked at him like this. You know, sized him up. You know, she sized, looked at him like, um, you need to follow your own message. You know, that's kind of like what was going on in her mind, I'm sure. And he caught it. And so this is what he said to her. He said, oh, he said, you're probably, probably noticing that I'm a really big guy. And he said, you're probably noticing I'm a really big guy and you're wondering how could I share with you the importance of dietary practices where it looks like I'm out of control. And she was just like, yeah. <laughs> and he says, well, what you don't know is that I was 700 pounds. <laughs> Puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? He said, what you didn't know is that I was 700 pounds. He said, but now I'm 400. And I have not finished my journey, but I'm on the road. Come join me on the road. That's the context of your brother presenting before you. I'm not a man who has completed it. I haven't mastered it, but I guarantee you I'm on the road. And I am simply appealing to your heart. Come join me on this road. Amen. Revelation 14. In Revelation, the 14th chapter, we find the last gospel herald to go before every nation, kindred, tongue, and people before Jesus comes. This is the last gospel message. There will be no other gospel ordained of heaven to go before the world and prepare the people to meet their God, except that which we read. In Revelation 14, it is known as what many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with the three 
angels' messages. The everlasting gospel. And so it is that in Revelation 14, you could rehearse verses 6 through 12, and I think it's good to go over it again and again because I want us to consider some things. So we're in Revelation 14. If you know it by memory, you're welcome to repeat it by memory. Just remember, our goal is not to focus on how much we know, but how much we are doing about what we know. So in Revelation 14, 6 through 12, the Bible tells us very clearly that John the Revelator says, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It is only two verses down in verses 14 and 15 that we see very clearly that it's after those three angels' messages are given that it makes it very clear harvest time comes. If you don't know what harvest time represents, if you got your Bible and you like marking it, you can put Matthew 13, 39. You put that right next to that verse uh, 15 where it talks about the harvest is come. And the word harvest in Matthew 13, 39 is the end of the world. All right. So harvest represents the end of the world. That's why we know the last message of love, hope and warning to be given to the world is the first, the second and the third angel's message. And this is what's encased in the proclamation of the everlasting gospel. If you understand what I'm saying thus far, let me hear you say amen. amen. Well, the thing that we want to consider is this. We are surrounded by people. We have the privilege of going to work, running our businesses, and meeting individuals that fit under the every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Is that right? All right. So we need to understand that before, when I go to work, it's not simply the instrument to provide a paycheck. It is literally my sanctuary. It's my church. It is a place. It's my field where I am to go and to seek and save that which is lost. This is how we have to look at our businesses. This is how we have to look at our jobs. When I worked in corporate, I've been full time in ministry now for 10 years. But before that, I was working in corporate. And I made sure that every day that I came to work, it was not about working hard and just getting the top level check that I could get. Of course, I enjoyed the privileges of working and getting paid for that. But at the same time, there should be a higher goal. That higher goal is from the person who opens the door and says hello to the executives that I sit down with and dialogue with. All of these individuals are counted amongst the every nation, kindred, tongue and people that I must reach. That needs to be the mindset. This is 
This is, in a nutshell, of what ASI is seeking to accomplish, is to see how can we bring Christ into the marketplace. How do we reach all these people? Because that's where they are. Now, part of that message that we're called to give is that third angel. In the third angel's message, it's a tough message. You can try to pamper it and fluff it up as much as you try. But if you fluff it too much, what's going to happen is you're going to compromise. At the end of the day, we must understand that the third angel's message is like a cleaver. You know what a butcher uses when he has to separate? That third angel's message is like a cleaver. It, it just cuts and it separates. And what it separates are those who want to follow Satan versus those who want to follow God. And it calls for an acknowledgement of the movements of Satan. It calls for an acknowledgement of what's happening in our world of something called the mark of the beast that's going to be set up amongst the people. That beast power. We believe as a Bible believing movement. Is that there's only two beasts that are our primary focus. According to the book of Revelation, especially chapter 13 onward. The first beast and the second beast. That first beast, based on Bible prophecy and faithful study, constitute what we call today the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church system. The second beast is none other than the United States of America. And these two beasts are going to come together. And they're going to seek to inflict and affect the people of God all over the world to do what they say or suffer the worst of punishments, including even death. So what that means is that when I go to work or when I deal with someone who is buying my product or my service, I must see them as somebody that is potentially being set up. And God has raised me up that I might seek and save that person from falling for the great setup. In 1998, there was a statement from Pope John Paul II that made it so clear this is the agenda of Rome. I put it here on the screen. It was entitled Dies Domini. You all can Google this. You can look this up. You can save this. And here's what they said with great clarity. When through the centuries she, talking about the Roman Catholic Church, when through the centuries she has made laws concerning Sunday rest, Sunday laws, it says the church has had in mind above all the work of what? Servants and workers. Certainly not because this work was any less worthy when compared to the spiritual requirements of Sunday observance, but rather because it needed greater regulation to lighten its burdens and thus enable everyone to keep the Lord's day holy. So what they were saying is, is the way the, the way the Roman Catholic Church would pass Sunday laws in times past is they did not focus so much on the spiritual components. That was not their method. Please listen to what I'm sharing with you. They made it clear it's not our method to have great spiritual emphasis. The way that they would convince people of Sunday laws is they would say, we want to give this to you as a benefit. It'll help lighten your loads. It'll enable you to spend more time with your family. It will put to check the demands of work and commercialization happening in our world. 
This was the means of how they would pass Sunday laws. Now watch this. It goes on to say, in this matter, my predecessor, Pope Leo XIII, in his encyclical Rerum Novorum, spoke of Sunday rest as a worker's right, which the state must guarantee. Therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Notice, civil legislation. That's the government telling you, regardless of what you believe, this is what needs to be done. Well, here was the encouragement as far back as 1998. Pope John Paul II is now resting in the grave, but he certainly has others, successors. And today we still have one. And I thought it was very interesting because as early as 2015, this little movement right here, I really like this clicker. Watch this. You probably can't read that, but now you can. The Global Catholic Climate Movement. The GCCM. You got to get that. You got to look that up. The GCCM, the Global Climate, Global Catholic Climate Movement. Since 2015, what they wanted to do was say, we need a plan to win the confidence of the people. Get them on our side. Even though there's a very undercover agenda. We just read the agenda. Now watch this. In 2015, in Paris, you remember the Paris Agreement? All right. Well, it says, in 2015, in Paris, countries agreed on a framework to limit greenhouse gas emissions. It's often called the Paris Climate Agreement. If you don't know about it, you need to know about it. Pope Francis's encyclical on climate change and ecology, ecology called Laudato Si, it says that interdependence obliges us to think of one world with a common plan. So this was the push. Then it says in 2015, to achieve the vision of Pope Francis and the church at the Paris summit, global Catholic climate movement collected nearly one million signatures and mobilized 40,000 people to march calling for an ambitious Paris agreement. In 2017, GCCM produced a prayer guide for the meeting that established a rule book for the Paris Agreement. In 2018, Catholic leadership will be essential to demonstrate moral clarity as countries announce their new national climate plans. What about 2019? Because that's the year we're in. 2019, notice the date, right there, June 14th, 2019, just a little over a month ago. It says Pope Francis declares climate emergency and he urges action. Well, what's the whole point? Pope Francis has declared a global climate emergency warning of the dangers of global heating and that a failure to act urgently to reduce greenhouse gases would be a brutal act of injustice toward the poor and future generations. The Pope's impassioned plea came as he met the leaders of some of the world's biggest multinational oil companies in the Vatican on Friday to impress upon them the urgency and scale of the challenge and their central role in tackling the emissions crisis. It followed a similar meeting last year, but this time the Pope's stance was tougher as he warned that time was running out and urged them to hear the increasingly desperate cries of the earth and its poor. Notice his concern is for the earth and its poor. Continuing, the chief executives, chairs of BP, ExxonMobil, Shell, Total, 
Conoco, Phillips, Chevron, and several major investors, including BlackRock and Herms, responded by calling on governments to put in place carbon pricing to encourage low-carbon innovation and called for greater financial transparency to aid investors. Well, when you look at all of this activity, again, it has to come together. It has to make sense. We understand that the last message to go before the world is the first, the second, and the third angel's message. In the proclamation, demonstration, in the teaching of the third angel's message, the beast must be identified, his mark must be clearly pointed out, and there must be a warning of the steps being taken that's going to ultimately establish that thing that we studied is their goal. A national Sunday law. We were privileged to see the methodology that's used. The method that they use is not spiritual primarily. They're not going to go before the world and say, oh, come on, look at what the Bible says, etc." They're not going to take that route. They would have very little success. But what they would do is they would begin to talk about talking points that allows us to come on common ground for common good by which they will seem as heroes to society. This plan has been put together just a few years ago. And this is, an, this is a, what we call the latest agitation. This is not, you know, there's been agitations going on for years. This is one of the latest agitations. Now, this is the part that got me. And I looked this up. And when I found this this morning, I said, Lord, that was you that sent this one. There is something called the global climate strike scheduled for next month. This was very interesting. Because, again, in the Paris Agreement, you know, there's a there's an urging coming about. Hey, global global climate issues. We got to address it. There's an urgency. This movement is going to take place in a very large way next month. OK, so we're talking about September 20 and September 27. OK, September 20 and September 27. Now, watch this. This what I found out about this. And this is why I, I hope that this will um, somehow be addressed even in the up and coming GYC. It says our hotter planet is already hurting millions of people. If we don't act now to transition fairly and swiftly away from fossil fuels to 100% renewable energy access for all, the injustice of the climate crisis will only get worse. The website is right there, globalclimatestrike.net. You can check it out. Now, I want you to watch this because this is a very, very interesting point. Young people. Oh, by the way, what is the name of our ASI? It's called Business What? Unusual. Watch this. Young people have woken up much of the world with their powerful Fridays for future school strikes for the climate. As we deal with devastating climate breakdown and hurdle towards dangerous tipping points, young people are calling on millions of us across the planet to disrupt business as usual. By joining the global climate strikes on September 20, watch this, just ahead of a UN emergency climate summit and again on September 27. In closing, together we will sound the alarm and show our politicians that business as usual is no longer an option. 
The climate crisis won't wait, and so neither will we. If the world working together with the power of the beast can understand it is time for business unusual. Certainly the remnant should have the mindset that says it is time for us to work in a manner that is business unusual. Now, my brothers and sisters, this is a major problem. This problem is going to impact everybody. This problem is going to impact our homes. It's going to impact our churches. It's going to impact our society. It's a very serious problem. But do you know something that God gave to this movement that can help solve that problem? It was what you read in Revelation 14, 6. John the Revelator said, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having something. What did the angel have? The everlasting gospel. Do you know what the everlasting gospel really is? That wonderful little book, my favorite book next to the Bible, Ministry of Healing. You know what it says on page 363? The gospel is a wonderful simplifier to life's problems. We literally have the solution to the problems in this world. I want you to think about that. What we've been given from heaven, the understanding that God has blessed us with, when we read our Bibles, you see, we don't have a common understanding of the Bible. We have an extremely powerful understanding of the Bible. God gave us the Bible, but, you know, God sees that, spiritually speaking, his people need bifocals. You know, when you think of bifocals, you think about that extra lens. And what God gave us is he gave us the Bible and he gave us a wonderful extra lens that helps make clearer what the Bible was already saying. If you don't understand things about education, God gave us the Bible and a book called Education. If you don't understand things about diet, God gave us the Bible and he gave us counsels on diets and foods. If you don't understand things as it relates to the home, God gave us the Bible and Adventist home. If you don't know how to work with your children, God gave us the Bible and he gave us child guidance. You don't know how to work with your youth. He gave us the Bible and messages to young people. You don't know how to deal with problems in the church. God gave us the Bible and the nine volumes of testimonies for the church. I mean, if you really think about it, we are an incredibly rich and blessed people. We know how to solve problems. We really do. We have the knowledge. But what are we doing with it? You see, the reality is the gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. But we have, family, a very serious problem. In the midst of the fact that the gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems, and we're seeing prophetically there's a major problem that's getting ready to hit the people in this world and take them, as it were, by an overwhelming surprise. And we have the solution to the problem right in our hands, but God prophetically told us there's a very serious problem. What is that serious problem? It was right there in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It says, this know also that in the last days, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. 
For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. And then it says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, and from such turn away. This is the prophetic picture that God has given to us, that in the last days with all of these agitations, when the need for problem solving is going to be at its highest, God raised us up to be an instrument in his hand to provide the solution to life's problems. But the problem is God also prophesied that amongst us, our religion was going to dumb down to a form. It was going to get to a point that we were just kind of used to showing up at church, even though we hardly listen to the sermons anymore. That when we go to church, we're kind of like one person. But then when we go home, we're different people. Standards would be lifted up on some areas, but standards would be compromised on other areas. God foresaw my people are going to become comfortable with just having a form of godliness. And in that, God says there will be no power to solve the problems that are in this world. What are we going to do about that? Well, I think we need to understand a secret of how we can live a life that we can get some real power. Because I wanted to show you why we need to have real power. Because we're going up against things that human power is not going to be enough to defeat it. Amen. The Bible promised us in Acts 1 and verse 8, but you shall receive power. God already promised it. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That sounds just like that three angels messages. Every nation, kindred, tongue and people. God says you're going to get that power. That power was none other than the Holy Spirit. Is that right? Amen. But you know what's interesting? When you look at the life of Jesus. Jesus had that very power that he wants to give to you and I. When you study the Bible carefully, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? You remember this? Luke 1 and verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the son of God. So God promised Jesus is going to have power. How is he going to have that power? The Holy Ghost is going to come upon him. We need that spirit. And we know that Jesus got it because this is talking about before he was even born. But by time he was a, an adult and of full age, here's the testimony of Scripture. In Acts 10 and verse 38, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with what else? Power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. This is the testimony God wants to have for you. God wants to anoint us with the Holy Ghost. He wants us to have power. And he wants us to go about in your business, in your workplace, in your school. He wants us to go about doing good. Now, 
You know the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. That is what we call the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Do you know Jesus had every single one of those fruits manifested in his life? Isn't that powerful? Look at that. That was a, that, I enjoyed doing that study. Look at that. I mean, Jesus had every single one. That's why when the Bible says in Colossians 2 that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily, boy, was that true. Jesus was a man that was walking love. He had joy. He had so much joy, he left it behind for us to partake. My joy I leave with you. Remember that? My peace I leave with you. Now watch this. Jesus had peace. He was long-suffering. He was very, very gentle. He was good. He's our source of faith. He was meek, and he was most definitely temperate. Christ, our pattern man. The one whom we are called to imitate. The one whom we are called to reflect. Jesus. I want to encourage you. Appreciate ministers. Appreciate gospel workers. But don't emulate them. Don't get to a point where you're trying to become like them. Be like Jesus. He's so much more attractive. He's so much more powerful. And don't think that preaching words makes a man powerful. It's the whole life. In fact, I'm going to build on that. One day Jesus is going around and he's just saying things. And I want to show you the clear testimony because what you see in Jesus is what should be seen in us. The Bible says in Luke 4 and verse 32, and they were astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power. When's the last time somebody was astonished at your doctrine? When's the last time somebody could say, man, just by just the way that you express the gospel, my heart cannot resist it. This is the impact that Jesus would have with his words. His words were with power. Look at another word for, uh, you know, words. But here it is. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I mean, Jesus's teachings. There was something additional to his words. Jesus' words were so powerful, my brothers and sisters, that when the officers were sent to arrest him, they couldn't. And when they came back, the best excuse they could come up with was, never a man spake like this man. I mean, you got to put your mind in the text sometimes. Never a man spoke like this man spoke. What was it that gave Jesus so much power? Because this is what we're going to need to help reach those precious souls that are absolutely walking in darkness. We're going to need this power. It's not intellect. You know, my friend Narlon Edwards gave an awesome sermon several weeks ago. He gave a sermon, and the sermon wasn't, I don't remember the title, but he made a point. He said, facts don't change people. And I said, man, that's true. And he used the best example in the world. I don't know if you heard of that, uh, that burger joint called Heart Attack Grill. I think it's in Las Vegas. And, and, and he just went into how the man literally, he literally carries in his restaurant the ashes of a man who was eating one of his heart attack burgers in his restaurant and died right at the table. He literally displays the man's ashes and helps the people understand. You do understand that after eating our food, this can happen to you. They present all the facts of the grease, the fat, the blood, and all the things that will happen to you. 
You have to pay for your food before you even order because they're not sure if you're going to drop dead and not pay for your food. So literally, this, I wish this was a joke. This is a true story. There's a restaurant that exists. And the people literally come there fully understanding, I can die. This can, they have a burger called Triple Bypass Burger. So in other, what's, the, what's the point? The point is very simple. If facts could change people, that restaurant should not be so super successful. Because he's presenting all the facts. But it's not changing the people. The point is very simple, family. We need something even more than intellect. Intellectual genius has its place. Don't get me wrong. It's involved in the process of winning souls, but it's not the source. And so Jesus had something more than mere intellectual acumen. He had something more than just the ability to explain things with excellent oratory. He had something more than that. And I want you to see what he had. Inspiration makes it clear. The officers who were sent to Jesus came back with the report. Never a man spoke as he spoke. But the reason for this was never a man lived as he lived. Then it says, had his life been other than it was, he could not have spoken as he did. His words bore with them a convincing power. Why? Because they came from a heart pure and holy, full of love and sympathy, benevolence and truth. Amen. Family, let's face it. <laughs> I, do you mind if, I'm, if I could be very real with you? Is that all right? I mean, this is the only way I know how to preach and teach is, is I, I'm very real with people because I think the hour is very late and we have no time to play games and do any acting around and dancing. I, I'm a former dancer. I'm not a present dancer. You understand that? Family, we know it's possible right now to shake a man's hand or shake a woman's hand and have a thought in our head that says, I wish you weren't here. We know how to do that, don't we? We know how to shake somebody's hands and say, hey, good to see you. When we know, I wish I didn't see you. We know how to quietly harbor things in the heart. And act like something that's absolutely not true. We do this with family members. Oh, man, we definitely do it with church brethren. And, and we do it with co-workers and all these things. This was not him. It says from his heart, he was full. When you're full of something, there's no room for anything else. It says his heart was full of love, sympathy, benevolence, and truth. He really learned how to love absolutely ungodly, unlovable people. And that's why I believe that's the final test for God's people. I firmly believe with all of my heart, God is waiting for us to have a love and unity like he has with the Father. And once we have that, the angels can let go of the winds and let the whole final crisis break loose. Because we're watching all these agitations happening in our world right now. We're seeing a lot of stuff going on that, yes, it could be scary to those who don't know Jesus. But it should not cause a fear in our heart. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we forget the way the Lord has led us and his teachings in our past history. So the reality is, is that we need to come in contact with ourselves and say, Lord, why do I lack convincing power? Why is it that I don't even have enough power to overcome my own issues? 
I remember one teacher, he said, and he was a powerful teacher. He taught Mark Finley and Doug Batchelor and many others. His name was W.D. Frizee. He said, you want to know what a true medical missionary is? And Elder Frizee said, when a man and a woman knows how to solve their own problems, then they can know how to solve other people's problems. I like that. That's simple, isn't it? That's what the gospel always should be, simple. The gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. When you and I learn how to solve our own problems, then we can go ahead and help other people solve their problems. But the reality is, is that a lot of us, you know, we're lacking this. So what can we do? Like, where's the victory lying? And so now that we got a good foundation to the realities of our battles and the issues ahead, what does God want us to do about it? We're going to look at three passages of scripture. Let's go to Mark chapter one. I want you to watch something about Jesus because I wanted to know how did Jesus have this live this kind of life, have this kind of power that even his words could stop people like uh, I mean, you got to understand those guys were sent to arrest Jesus and his words made them stop. Like, how do you stop? Like if somebody was coming to arrest me and I could just say to them. God says, stand right there. And that brother just, you know, he just stops and he just looks at his partner and let's go. And then he just walks away. That's exactly what happened with Christ. Like he could stop aggressive men who are about to arrest him just by his words. You shall look for me, but you won't be able to find me for where I'm going. You cannot go. And that was enough for them to say, guys, let's let's abandon this mission. And they turned. That's that's some power. What was it that helped Jesus? I want you to look at this. Mark one and verse thirty five. This is the secret. I'm letting you in on the secret right now. Here's the secret. Mark 1 and verse 35. The Bible says, and in the what? And in the morning. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed where? Into a solitary place. And what did he do? He prayed. Luke 5. In Luke, the fifth chapter, let's notice this. In Luke chapter 5, I want you to notice again, Luke 5, 15 and 16. In Luke 5, verses 15 and 16, notice what the Bible says. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And he withdrew himself where? Into the wilderness. And what did he do? He prayed, Luke 6. In Luke, the sixth chapter, notice what the Bible says as we consider verse 12. In Luke 6 and verse 12, the Bible goes on to say, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into where? A mountain to pray. And how long did he do it? All night in prayer to God. Let's recap. We started our message understanding the blessing does not belong to the hearers of the word, but to the doers of the word. It's not about what you know. It's about what you and I are doing with what we know. Is that right? After that, we then consider James 4.17, which helps us to understand the depth of knowing and not doing. For the Bible says to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. So it's a really, really dangerous thing when we know the right things to do, but we don't do it. Okay. That's, that's clear. Then we went to the last message 
The last message to go to the world is the first, second, and third angel's message. And we know that in the proclamation of the third angel's message, which is what we must reach the people with, there's no other gospel for us to give to the people in the marketplace. There's no other gospel. This is the gospel. So when we get to that third angel, we have to identify this beast and the mark and all these other things. Well, we saw that the beast's power is not going to try to convince the world at large by way of spirituality. But what they're going to do is try to convince the world to follow their ways by trying to constantly present benefits towards them and their homes and present themselves as heroes, ones whom the people can trust. And then afterwards, they'll bring in the spiritual, and that's how Sunday laws will be set up. We need to look at people at work and at school and all these other places. We need to see them as potential individuals to fall under this deception. We see radical movement taking place where even the young people are saying as early as next month, they're ready to go ahead and do business unusual to win people to concepts that they don't even see is ultimately going to set folks up to eventually follow the papacy all the way in even receiving the mark of the beast. We know that. So in the midst of all these problems, we saw that the gospel is a solution to problems. We also saw that God gave us the gospel, that we can help solve those problems. But then we saw a problem. And the problem is God prophesied in the last days, we're going to have a problem. And our problem is, is that our religion is going to be dumbed down to a form denying power. We looked and we saw, well, God has always made power available to us through the Holy Spirit. We also saw that Jesus, our excellent example, was filled with the Spirit, and he demonstrated the kind of power that he wants to give to us. But the question is, how do we get that power? And now we are back again at the secret. The secret to a life of power was the communion life of Jesus Christ. That's the secret. Do you hear me whispering? It's a secret. The secret to a life of real gospel, Christ-centered power is not how hard you work. Listen to that carefully. The secret to yours and my power is not how hard we work. It's about what are you doing that first thing in the morning before you begin your day. It's what are you doing in the middle of your day? It is what are you doing at the conclusion of your day? And Jesus literally gave us the secret. And he showed us, you and I need to go. We need to find a solitary place. And Jesus said, I need you to spend some time with me. Like you never have before. You see, I've watched many people who preach very well. I've been part of this movement now for 27 years. I have heard men preach Bible and spirit of prophecy so strong. And they are in the world today. Living some of the most vile lifestyles. But when they were on their way out and they said, Brother Lemon, I'm leaving. I asked them a question. I said, oh, I'm tired of the church. I'm tired of the people. You know, a thousand excuses. I said, let me ask you this. What was your communion life like over the past six months to a year? 
do you know 100% of the people I talked to that ended up apostatizing? One of the very foundational problems was their devotional life became very weak, very traditional, very routine, very shallow, no heart in it whatsoever. Their communion life was grossly compromised. I know people who used to practice all the reforms. This, it, it, this church is such an interesting church. It is God's church. <laughs> when I see the things I see, I say, boy, this is God's church. Because God already said all the things that's going to happen, and it's happening with, to a T. I can remember people who used to practice dress reform. They used to practice health reform. They used to believe in out of the city, into the country. They used to believe a lot of those unique features of our message. Today, their skirts are high, their cleavage is low, the brothers are looking like they're coming off of a fashion road show. Um, you know, they, they make all the reasons in the world, oh, this is why we have to live in the cities. And they make up every reason of why they do what they do. And they abandon all of those teachings. Now, those teachings did not change. They claim enlightenment. But when I ask them, well, where's the enlightenment? They have no true foundation for their so-called enlightenment. And then I begin to ask them, tell me about your devotional life. What's your communion life like? Walk me through what you do when you wake up in the morning before you start your day. And again, I find the connection. Weak, shallow, very quick, very surface. That's nothing like what Jesus did. This is about as clear as it gets for me, family. I want you to notice what inspiration says. The Savior's life on earth was a life of communion with nature and with God. Notice what it says next. In this communion, he revealed for us the secret of a life of power. Ministry of Healing, page 51. Jesus wanted us to understand, where did I get all the energy to resist those Pharisees? Where did I get all this energy to heal the sick when everybody else? He would often tell the disciples, you guys go and rest a while, but that was not so for him. He would keep working. And when he was finished and those Pharisees was wearing them down and those people with all their needs was wearing them down. You read it in Luke six. Jesus would go into a solitary place. And I want you to notice that each of those solitary places was always nature. Isn't that what we read? Yep. He always went in nature and he would spend time with God, either to get charged or to get recharged. I am meeting people in our church that are holding very high and responsible positions and they're losing their fire or is getting dumbed down to a very, very common form. Neither of those fits Jesus. Jesus came every day bursting with a brand new zeal because there was one thing Jesus would not compromise. It was his time with God. I was reading, um, I'm going to let you in on a secret. That's why I put that picture there, you know, listening for a secret. Um, I was reading Christ Object Lessons, and when I was going through Christ Object Lessons, it's talking about the parable of the sower. And you'll remember in the parable of the sower, it talks about how there were individuals who uh, the cares of this life would choke out, you know, all of the things of God. It was very interesting when you get to page 52. In Christ Object Lessons, page 52, it switches. And it switches to a group that I had to honestly say, 
you know, like my mouth dropped, eyes kind of opened. I said, Lord, have mercy on me. And I'm very serious when I say that. There's a trap that the devil has made for the good people doing good work. It's actually the opposite of the secret to a life of power. This one is called the secret to failure. You ready for it? They, she describes this other class, not the ones who are being choked out by business ventures and all these other things. She says they are working for others good. Isn't that good? They're working for other people's good. It says their duties are pressing, their responsibilities are many, and they allow their labor to do something terrible, to crowd out devotion. Does anybody in this room know what I'm talking about? You're very busy doing good. Your labors are for others. You want to have good quality time with God, but because of maybe some habits of intemperance, late nights, doing other things perhaps we shouldn't do, or maybe because of issues beyond our control, we find ourselves getting up and at best we got time maybe for a little reading from Reflecting Christ. This day with God. We get that little reading in and we expect that little reading to give us a full charge to deal with some of the. And I mean it when I say this to deal with some of the demon possessed people that we're going to deal with during the day. They are working for others good. Their duties are pressing. Their responsibilities are many and they allow their labor to crowd out devotion. Notice communion with God through prayer and a study of his word is neglected. Here is one of the chief secrets of failure in Christian work. Chief secret. We don't have any power. And when we don't have power, we lean on intellect. We lean on prestige. We lean on position. We lean on whatever earthly, external, what appears to be reason you should listen to me. Rather than the anointing of God's spirit. This has happened to me so many times. And so God began to really help me see as I pray he's helping you see there's some things in life that you just got to realize it must be a non-negotiable. If you got to lose everything, then lose everything. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And if you keep compromising your devotional time, you're going to lose your own soul. So you got to ask yourself, what is it that's keeping me from having a deeper communion time with God? What's keeping me from that? What is keeping me from getting quality time? Wives know what quality time is. They long for it from their husbands. Husbands know what quality time is. They long for it for their wives. Children know about quality time. They long for it from mom and dad. Jesus longs for communion. He wants quality time. He doesn't want your mind racing. He doesn't want you reading. And while you're reading out of one eye, you're thinking in the other eye. Oh, I got to clean that up. I got to move this out. I got to move the car. I got to. God is like, you're not actively listening to me. God is like, you're not giving me my time. And what happens is because God loves us so much, it actually does hurt him. But boy, does it hurt us. Because we're going to find ourselves like those sons of Sceva, one day dealing with somebody who's demon possessed. And in the name of Jesus and Paul, we tell you to come out. And that demon is going to say, look, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But I don't know who you are. 
You don't have the power that Jesus and Paul had. You understand that? The secret to a life of power is that time that you and I get with God. Sometimes promotion is the devil's plan. Are you following that? Sometimes when you have more responsibilities and doing more, managing more, overseeing more, and yes, making more. Sometimes the devil set that up. And if you don't believe the devil can prosper you in temporal things, you go back to Matthew 4. That's exactly what he said to Jesus. Hey, you do what I say. I'll give you all these cities. I'll give you everything. Don't believe that every ray of prosperity that comes your way came from God. The devil wants to steal your power. He wants to disconnect and he wants to keep you and I in the form. We got to know what it is to get up in the morning and our minds are not divided. And like Jesus, did you read what it said in Mark 135? It says a great while before day. Jesus understood. Look, by the time the sun rises, I know they're going to call for me. Jesus was a master of time management. And so he understood that. And he said, well, that just means I got to get. Now, if you really studied Mark one, you would see the previous verses. It literally showed that Christ was working almost all night. He was healing all the people after sunset. So that means that Jesus had a late night, but he still got up a great while before day. What Jesus was trying to introduce to you and I is the prioritization of communion with God. Don't let anything get in the way. It'll steal your power. Now, the part that really got me was, why nature? That was, that was a very intentional statement, wasn't it? It, it? it literally said that. It said communion with God in nature. So I'm like, what, what's that all about? What is the reason that God, that Christ would go in nature? Because that was the twofold example. Getting up early in the morning, solitary place, communion with God and with nature. That's what it said. Why nature? Well, there are obvious reasons on a physical sense. Early in the morning, especially if you're surrounded by the scenes of nature, it's a very beautiful time. Uh, the air is very crisp and fresh, more than likely, especially, again, if you're, if you're surrounded by nature, you know, country environments, mountain environments, things of that nature. If you're privileged to be around that, oh, that's awesome. But sometimes, even if you have a backyard, it's all right to just take your chair and to go out in your backyard. You know, if you got a little garden plot, just take your chair and put it in front of the garden plot. You know what I'm saying? Just, but, why, but watch this, watch this, watch this. Why nature? You see, an evergreen tree. What is the lesson we learned from the evergreen tree? Unchanging. Doesn't matter what the weather is. Unchanging. Every time we're in nature and we behold that evergreen tree, God wanted us to remember, I am the Lord and I don't change. Sometimes in the morning we're wondering, God, are you there? God, did you really mean what you said? But once our eyes lift up and look at that evergreen tree, God says, as faithful as that tree is to maintaining its green, God says, magnify that times infinity. And that's how faithful I am to being who I said I am. That's why God says, you want to know my name? I am that I am. I don't change. Every time we get surrounded by the scenes of nature, nature has a way of reminding us of who we're talking to. How about this one? That's Malachi 3.6. The mountains and the hills. Those represent a place of safety and help. You'll remember that the Bible shows us very clearly in Psalms 121, 1 and 2. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence comes my help. 
My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. When we have worship with God in nature, when we are surrounded by those scenes, every time we see those hills, when we see those mountains, we can remember as it was a place of refuge for David running from Saul. So it is that God is my refuge. God will provide help to me in my greatest times of need. How about a rock? The rock represented fortress and strength. So it is. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. I'm trying to tell you that we go through very real battles every day when we pray. We need strength. We need wisdom. We need knowledge. We need power. We ask for blessings. These are all the things we look for when we get up in the morning and have a little bit of prayer time with God. God says, the reason why I want you to have communion with me as much as is practical and possible. God says, go outside. Do it in nature. Imitate fully the communion life of Jesus. And when you do that, there are blessings that comes. How about this one? Flowers. When you're out in nature, that's where you, every time you look at those flowers, that gives you a picture of God's love and care. Think about it. The Bible's clear. I am, this is God talking, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among daughters. The lily was to be representative of God's love towards us. So whenever we, held the, we saw the beauty of those flowers, it was to remind us of God's incredible loving care towards you and towards me. That's why the Bible also goes on to say, you remember in Matthew 6, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Shall he not much more clothe you? God literally says the more you have communion with him in nature, you will find less and less reason to have so much perplexities in our lives as we have. It was a secret. God says, that's why I did it. I left this for you as my people. The son, the son, of course, healing, right? You remember what Malachi says, but unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness, S-U-N, of righteousness, arise with healing in his wings and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the star. Malachi 4 and verse 2. I don't know about you, but there's nothing sweeter. I've had this happen to me. Sometimes I go outside and I have my communion with God sitting on a tree or something like that, you know, whatever, like, you know, you got trees that fall or whatever, and I make it my seat. I'm like, well, it fell, it's my blessing. So I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll sit on that seat, have my Bible out, have my other books, and I'm out there in nature, and I'm talking to God, and God speaks to me. And sometimes, I, I love it whenever this happens, sometimes I'm in an intense moment. I'm reading his word, and I'm like, Lord, can you really apply this in my life? You know, and then as I'm reading, all of a sudden, whoosh, the ray of the sun literally hits me right on my face. And it's like the, when that ray of the sun hits me right on my face, it just reminds me of that sun of righteousness. That God says, as, my, as the beam of the sun lights up so much of the planet, I had a ray just for you, Dwayne. God says, that's how much I care about you. But when you're surrounded by the paint and the buildings and all these other things, you can miss out on some of those blessed communications. You understand that? The sky. Hard not to see that one. In the sky, God's mercy, faithfulness, and strength. Well, the Bible says, thy mercy, Psalms 36, 5, Psalms 68, and verse 34. 
Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reaches unto the clouds. Ascribe ye strength unto God. His excellency is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. Jesus was very intentional in going out in nature, having communion with God, because he didn't just have the word written. He had the word created that was constantly speaking to him. And that's the purpose of communion. It's not only for us to speak to him, but it's for him to speak to us. And so Jesus literally modeled this for you and for me. My brothers and my sisters, I told you, I'm not here to drop anything deep on you. I'm giving you something that's super simple. Some of us in this room right now, our religion is falling into a form. And God has already told us there's no power in that. And I believe if you and I carefully look at our lives, we see the lack of power. We can see it. And so we try studying a little bit more. We go to more seminars. We buy more books. We try new prayer concepts and gimmicks. But Jesus says, listen, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, saints. Jesus says, go back to my ordained example. Jesus says, I didn't put it in the word just so you could say, huh, that's nice. Jesus says, I left that as an example for you. First John two and verse six. If any man says that he abides in Christ, he is to walk also as Christ walked. That means how he lived is how we live. Jesus came to show us how to live. And I'm telling you the truth. The more that you and I Focus on getting that communion life right. Every morning, you need to write out the time that best fits you and your schedule. And you must put it on your phone, on your Apple Watch, or whatever you got. You need to be able to say, no more compromise. No more compromise. Four times a day, my phone, my iPad, my computer, and even my Apple Watch puts up one of my favorite quotes in the writings of Ellen White. Gospel Workers, page 204. What a man is has greater influence than what he says. And I put reminders in. So just throughout the day, I'm minding my business or whatever, and ding, that thing goes off, and it just reminds me. Dwayne, remember, what a man is has greater influence than what he says. And I find myself going into prayer. Lord, help me to remember it's who I am and not even so much what I do that you truly find valuable in your sight. God wants you to be what you say you are. We teach very high and holy principles to people, family. It's time we start living it. And this is like the ABCs. Morning devotion. Set the time. When you set the time, guard it. Guard it, brothers and sisters. Let nothing get in the way. But then Jesus also showed us, after a hard day's work, don't just simply, all right, and then go to bed. Christ says, go back to God. Get a recharge. Assess your day. Find out your failures and work to make sure that they never happen again. Find out your successes. Try to work to make that your constant. And what you and I are learning to do is exactly what the psalmist said in Psalms 55 and verse 17. Evening, morning, 
and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and the blessed promise, he will hear my voice. I'll give you this final little statement here and then we can close it out. I like being on time. Praise the Lord. I've really been asking God to help me with that with conferences and stuff because, you know, I, I, I want to respect the time. So in the book Education, page 192, it's a beautiful quote. As the student of the Bible beholds the Redeemer, there is awakened in the soul the mysterious power of faith, adoration, and love. It says, upon the vision of Christ, the gaze is fixed, and the beholder grows into the likeness of that which he adores. This is my encouragement to you. Take your eyes off a man. Fix your eyes on Jesus. A beautiful concept for your devotional life. When you get up in the morning, make a full surrender of your heart, your will to God. Lord, today, not my will. Your will be done. Full surrender. Whatever way you direct, I will follow your leading. Number two, confess and forsake all known sin. You see all the accommodating verses. Confess and forsake all known sin. Whatever you know that's going on in your life that you know, this is not something that pleases God. I know that this is wrong. Lord, I confess this. I acknowledge this. By your grace, I am turning away from it. Do not consult your feelings. God never asked you to do that. God says, choose to do it. I will give you the feelings for it. Number three, exercise faith in the charge you receive from his word, regardless of feelings. If God tells you from his word that I want you to exercise more kindness today, I want you to do more sacrificial, self-sacrificial service, whatever it may be, then you go ahead and you exercise it. And you say, Lord, I trust your word. I act on your word. Number four, seek. Oh, and I cannot stress this enough. Seek God's character, excellence, purity, and mercy towards you in the midst of your sinfulness in all your readings. Always look for it. This will help keep you humble. Preachers have a big problem with this. The devil's always telling us how great, smart, and ingenious we are and unique and all this other stuff. And when we compare ourselves to Christ, we go through immediate humility. Amen. Keep your eyes on the character of God. Look for it in your devotional time. Five, commune with God a minimum of three times a day. That's what the Bible says. So get that time in the morning. In the midday, we understand lives are very busy. So even if it's five minutes, family, I think all of us in the midst of very, 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 very busy schedules, take five minutes. Talk with the Lord, review a couple of promises, get that charge. And then certainly in the evening, review your day. And if you failed in certain areas, acknowledge it. Don't make excuses. Lord, I messed up here. By your grace, help me to do better tomorrow. Number six, make it a habit to turn all your burdens and cares to God, trusting he will deliver. These are some keys that I would like to encourage you to exercise in your devotional time. And you will find that as you do this day by day, your communion will get more and more sweet. Let us remember that opening verse. Blessed are the doers of the word. And not be ye doers, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. The blessing is not going to come by saying, wow, that was a good message. It touched my heart, etc." The question is, are you going to do it? And if you do it, well, you got a lot of blessings coming your way. And then you'll be a blessing 
to a lot of people that really need it in these last moments in earth's history. How many of us are willing to say, Lord, by your grace, the communion life of Jesus will be mine? Could I see your hands go up? Oh, man, that's beautiful. Boy, I wish I had my camera. I'd love to take a picture of that. That looked beautiful. That just looked beautiful. Let's seal our decision in prayer. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We got a lot of problems in this world, but we are eternally grateful that Christ came to show us the solution. And we need power to overcome the things that challenge us internally, in our homes, in our churches, and most certainly what's coming in this world that's going to take the majority of the people as an overwhelming surprise. I pray help us to learn from Jesus. It was not just all the things he did during the day, but it was especially what he chose to do in the morning and in the evening in the solitary place. Lord, let this be a new wave of lifestyle for us. And may we experience the secret to a life of power and overcome the wicked secret, secret to failure in Christian work. This is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.